Welcome to the very first episode of Have the Nerve, a podcast by Spinal Cord Injuries Australia. I'm your host, Susan Wood, and for this episode, we will explore identity, inclusiveness, and some of the roadblocks navigating the NDIS for queer people with disabilities. You're going to hear from Jess Pello and Michael Magro, who share their experiences being part of two minority communities, and Shabelle Zada, Community Health Promotions Officer for ACON's LGBTQ People with Disability Project. Shabelle has been part of the rollout of the Queer Abilities NDIS Toolkit. This co-designed toolkit supports, empowers and assists queer people with disabilities who may have difficulty trying to access the NDIS. Let me describe for you two scenarios. Here's the first one. You're single and you've decided to go out and meet people. It's the early 2000s and online dating hasn't come into form yet. You lock eyes with a man and he comes toward you. The music is thumping and you can feel your heart race. He's coming closer and you feel your heart beating harder. He notices the wheelchair. Step back and he looked horrified and he said sorry immediately. You feel your heart drop into the pit of the stomach and you feel sick. Now here's the second one. You need to arrange a support worker to come over and help you with personal care, which is no big deal, right? Now imagine a situation where a support worker or a support agency has made you feel uncomfortable in the past because of the negative bias over your sexual orientation. So now you find yourself disclosing your sexuality over and over again. A disability service provider, if they are faith-based, just due to our historically negative relationship between our sexuality and religion. Um, but there's also the fact that we we don't have our agency considered taken seriously by people in our lives and our support workers, um, our family. What is it like to be part of both the disability and the queer community? Do you want to start with uh, you, Mike? It's been yeah, it's been interesting. It's been an interesting life so far. Um, I think having a disability and probably a lot more, it's probably a lot more accepted going to whether clubs, gay bars or whatnot or activities. Um, I always felt isolated. People, I think, uh, in the queer community were indirectly, generally speaking, not all the time, um, you know, whether it's indirect, and I know that now, but at the time it was kind of um, it was very isolating. We're going to get back to back to that point, Mike. Um, Jess, what would you like to say about being part of both communities? I'm 27 years old, so my experience with the queer community is going to be a little bit different. I think for me I feel more accepted within the queer community than what I do within the disability community based on the fact of what my disability is. I find that I tend to get uh, ostracised a little bit because I have the ability to walk as a quadriplegic. So, which I think is a really interesting concept to have because as people who are around disability so much, uh, whether you choose to be or not, we tend to see our likeness as, you know, that's our comfortability. But if you see someone who literally gets out of the car and then puts their chair in the back and then walks around to the front, there's that certain sense of like, oh, I'm just a little taken aback. For the queer community, I've always been accepted for exactly who I am um, and that's never changed. 
Um, dating is different uh, to being to acceptance, though, and I will say that. Well, this is two quite different perspectives. I would say maybe some of it has to do with age difference. So, Michael, you were talking about uh, general indirect unkindness from people. Um, would you like to talk about what that actually looks like? I've been with my partner for 10 years. Um, prior to that, you know, um, I remember going to a club and I had my leg folded. My leg was uh, cocked up on my on my knee in the club it was dark it was and this guy was um i guess you know it was, it was an attraction between him and i uh he came around um probably it was, it was an hour or so and you know he came around when he noticed that i was in a wheelchair he just stepped back and he looked horrified and he said sorry immediately um so that was hard to take that was hard it was difficult to take but look, you know, it happens in society anyway, so it's no different to to what to how society perceives people with disability, you know. And I guess for me, the, the other um, point I'd make is, you know, you know, having disability, being a wheelchair user, and then the misconceptions or the ideas surrounding, hey, hang on, how does this guy have sex? So that's yeah, you, know, you know, and. Not many people in general would feel comfortable with with that. And I guess that's where the isolation was. How often would you come across those sorts of um, interactions? Yeah, frequently, you know, not, not all the time, but frequently. I mean, you know, in all that as well, I don't want to tarnish the quick community with what I say, but in all that, there were good moments as well that I had. Um, but yeah, that, that, you know, certainly um, there were situations which were awkward, awkward for myself and awkward for the other person as well. Jess, on your um, side of flipping the side of the coin, why do you think that has happened for you? I think there's a, there's, I personally think there's a stigma around wheelchair users who can walk um, in society from all aspects and all aspects of life. I believe that people who see someone, uh, so an able-bodied person who would see someone in a wheelchair rolling around but then steps, uh, stands up to reach something at the supermarket or something, um, they're quite taken aback by that just because of a lack of understanding. People within the disability community, I would like to say that I don't think it's so petty as jealousy but it's very much like you don't represent me, whereas I feel like people in the queer community often go, I see someone who's out there who identifies similar to me and they represent who I feel. My name is Chabela Zara. My pronouns are he, him. I currently work as one of two community health promotion officers for the LGBTQ plus people with disability project at ACON. On International Day of People with Disabilities 2020, ACON virtually launched their Queerability NDIS Toolkit. This toolkit aims to tackle some of the more underlying issues that the community faces when trying to find supports and services. Uh, give us a bit of background on ACON. 
Sure. Um, I know, do you know that they were started in the early 80s and they've grown to become one of the largest LGBT organizations here in Australia. So they currently work in various different fields related to our communities. I know I know that we're currently working on domestic violence in our community and just sexual health, mental health, physical health, just basically trying to address some of the poor health outcomes that we have in our community. And um, we're doing some really great, important work right now. And hopefully we'll reach a point one day in the future where we might not have to need to do this work all the time. So on December 3rd, International Day of People with Disabilities, um, the Queerability team at ACON launched the NDIS Toolkit that's focused on our community. And so we did, we did that launch online, which I thought was a pretty great idea, especially when you consider that for people in our community, we have lower health outcomes. We uh, often, we have immunity issues, so immunocompromised conditions and stuff like that. So it's a lot easier to sort of engage when it's online. And um, that was definitely reflected in the numbers that we got on the day of the launch. So we had, um, I believe it was over 100 people there. And um, for, two, for two, two very new community health promotion workers, it was pretty overwhelming, but um, it was really great because it, like, it clearly showed that there was a lot of interest in what we were doing. And um, it was actually really fun. And we did our best to accommodate to as many accessibility needs as we possibly could. So we had closed captioning that didn't unfortunately work the very best, but we did our best of that. And um, we also had an Auslan interpreter there. Do you um, just want to talk a little bit about robust conversation that you had on the day? So what were people talking about? Um, it was mainly related to the toolkit that we were launching. And we also had a very robust conversation happening in the chat in the chat function, this is in society. So it's all about you know trying to expand the accessibility of that toolkit. So right now it's currently at its basic stage. How do we you know address the issues of changing gender markers, pronouns in you know in in the NDIS package you might have? It's actually surprisingly a lot more complicated than it should be. Trying to put together the evidence you have to to support your case. And so we are looking to expand that toolkit into a different part of the NGIS journey. So what happens after you get your NGIS package? Who do you, who can you talk to? What are your rights? Which is a very big one because the NGIS can be quite confusing. So you never know, you know, what, you, what you're allowed to say, what you're not allowed to say, stuff like that. Some of the other conversations were just where the toolkit could kind of improve on. So we know that there's, it, the toolkit that we launched is focused on a very specific part of the NDI's journey. So it's right at the very beginning. It was really nice. It was very engaging, very interactive. And um, to be quite honest, it was really nice to connect with my community because I oftentimes don't have the energy and the time to be able to sort of, you know, do some do some of that outreach. Talk us through a, a bit around the roadblocks and some of the things that can happen um, for people who have a disability who are also part of the queer community. Sure. Um, some, of the, some of these roadblocks are pretty obvious when you look at it. So I think the biggest problem that we're having right now is currently the attitude towards people with disabilities who are also part of the queer community. So for me, attitude underpins everything. So, you know, would we have the issues we have right now if there wasn't such a poor poor attitude towards people with disabilities, you know? Would we have the ableist power structures in our society if people's attitudes towards people with disabilities weren't so apathetic or even dangerous? And so we see that attitude kind of reflected in support workers, family members, and, you know, if you're trying to go for employment, it's not easy there either. For, for someone who's part of both communities, those attitudes can be stigma. And we know stigma means people with disabilities who are from the LGBTQ plus community have much lower health outcomes. 
um, we know that these attitudes can also be reflected through the lens of religion. So we wouldn't. So we know that statistics said that we're typically more, we're typically less likely to access a disability service provider if they are faith-based, just due to our historically negative relationship between our sexuality and religion. Acon's queerability used a co-design principle. The project would be led by queer people with disabilities for queer people with disabilities. And so we had a interagency. We also had a um, an advisory group filled with people who are from our community. It was basically a collaborative effort. What what do we want to see from the toolkit? What are some of the conversations that we need to have surrounding support and accessibility? And so it was very much led by people with our own community. When queerability were in the development phase of the NDIS toolkit, they came across a bit of a problem. What happens when you need data to support you, but it is so niche, there isn't anything there? So typically when it comes to a niche community like ours, so, you know, being a person with a disability and also someone with sexually and gender diverse, um, the research isn't actually quite there yet. It's actually it's a quite, quite a small body of work, um, but it did very much highlight how there's a massive lack of research for our community. And the question is, like, how can we create programs and policies that would better impact our, our community when we have next to no research on them? And I think that's really a testament to sort of the level of apathy that can be faced in our society. You know, if people cared a little bit, a slightly bit more, maybe there would be a bit more research there. All right, so dating and disability and then being part of the queer community. Now, Mike, you said that you've been with your partner for 10 years. Based on the conversations you'd had about people not being so embracing of your disability, were there any very frank questions? So... You know, I guess at that stage I had been single between my previous partner and that was another long-term relationship and my current partner. I'd been single for like seven years and I wanted to be single, you know. I, I, I chose to be single. Yes, I flirted around and, yes, I had fun and, you know, yeah, I did a lot of that stuff um, in between. Uh, but, with, you know, I guess for me personally, my partner is – one of a kind, you know, he's very, as, 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 as a person, he's very accepting without really needing to be convinced or, or having a conversation. So it, it flow, it, it was a flow, there was a flow to it, you know, for me at the time, I kind of, um, was a bit stressed out, <laughs> you know, I, I think it's stressful anyway for anyone. But when, but when you know someone's sharing your intimate space, okay, um, and seeing what's beneath the clothes we wear, all right, and how we how we perform for, as people, we get that that's that's in, that's confronting anyway. I think with a disability even more so because we do things differently. But again, there was just a flow. You met in person, and let's just say for uh, Jess, how is dating? online as part of all these things been for you do you have the bleeper if i swear do you have the bleeper fucking terrible (laughs) yeah go on yeah i won't hold anything back i struggle with the idea i've never had a woman come out and say that or a woman or a human uh, or a female identifying person come out and say to me i don't date people with disabilities 
because I find that women are a little bit more intentional about the way that they say things that they don't need to say. They're a little bit more tactful when it comes to that. It's like, oh, I'm just not in the right space. You're a really cool chick. I'd like to be friends. And I sit there and I go, this is not why I'm on a dating app. <laughs> it's in the title. You know, I'm not here to meet people. I've got a really good, great, amazing group of queer friends um, who are all at least 10 years older than me. Uh, you know, it's it's not it's not my thing. So that's not why I'm on dating apps. I met my ex on a website eight years ago this year. And we were together for about three years um, and I thought it would be really easy to get back into dating after that. And I've been, yeah, I've been single for four years this year, um, five years this year, sorry. I find it really difficult. I find it quite confronting and that sort of that age-old question of do I put a photo of myself in my wheelchair, do I not, should it matter? No, it shouldn't, but I want to weed out the people that don't, want to know me because I have a random means of transportation attached to my ass. Just because I roll with rainbow wheels doesn't mean shit. It's, you know, 100%, it's it's a part of who I am, but it's not who I am because I don't identify as a dis- disabled person. I identify as a woman with a disability, as a queer woman with a disability. So, you know, I identify as queer and that's, that's who I am because, again, in Side note, I don't feel like the term lesbian identifies with me because I feel like it's too binary. But And it's just and it's the same way is that I'm not disabled, I have a disability. And it's the way that I identify as a, as a human, as a human being that means the most to me. But people, when they see me on a dating app and they swipe through photos, they go, oh, she has a disability. You know, oh, she's in a wheelchair. Oh, I'm going to have to be a carer type thing, which is not the case at all. So I feel like people judge very early on because dating apps are always based on appearance. What sort of impact does that make to you when you're growing up? For me personally, it had a negative impact because I always felt alone. Uh, no matter how many social groups I, I joined, I still felt isolated in that, you know, because it always came down to, I mean, look, everyone gives great advice and at the end of the day, I could always uh, intellectualize it. But I felt it was always undermining or compromising who I am as a person. I grew up with my disability, so the limitations were always placed on the fact before dating apps came out and then when dating apps came out and I was maybe in my early 20s when they really sort of started ramping up, you know, Tinder and her and Grinder for Guys really came out in my early 20s. So the only other way I would have ever been able to meet other queer individuals such as myself was going out and going clubbing, going out of a night and going to, you know, queer women's nights and stuff like that. The drawback for that is that they're always upstairs in a heritage pub, you know, where they don't have to have a lift or you can't get in the front door or, you know, there's no accessible bathroom. And could you give me a bit more information about how that undermines and compromises you? Because you're always going to the same, the same situation, you know, with a different guy, you know, having to justify and explain yourself. You know, and it's a world we live in, you know, um, people are ignorant, generally ignorant. Um, and I guess when you try to have that conversation, you, you, what I've learned is, 
any conversation really, you've got to make it the right timing for both people. There's just nothing when it comes to, you know, sexual health of people with disabilities because it's often being put into the too hard to, uh, too hard to handle basket, you know? And I'm like, on one hand, I can understand that the challenges of our identities are difficult to deal with, but that doesn't mean we get left behind. That's not what our community should be standing for. And from the very beginning, our, uh, the LGBTQ plus community has always been standing for inclusion. But yet, when it comes to addressing sexual health, addressing our sexual agency as people with disabilities within our community, it's never addressed. And it's just, it's kind of disheartening. It's demoralizing because for a community that goes on and on about acceptance, do we feel accepted sometimes? It doesn't happen. It's very exclusionary in certain aspects. I think it's interesting uh, within the queer community particularly because sexual health is so important. You, you already see a lack of sexual health for people with disabilities and then a lack of sexual health um, information uh, for people within the queer community. The gaps in between that would overlap with the two of them must be huge. We know that a significant part of our disability community are also people who are gender and sexuality diverse. Um, so, and we know that people with disabilities, of course, have to access the NDIS. But so, but the problem is that we have the problem we have there is the when you come when you have the intersectionality of your your identity, you also have overlapping prejudices that come along with each section of your identity, and so that can kind of create a compounding factor, and that can traditionally lead to queer people with disabilities not accessing the NDIS. Um, I know the NDIS has created a LGBT strategy or is currently working on one. Um, and so, yeah, current, there's a lot of overlap there. Um, and we also know, especially with our trans and gender diverse uh, NDIS participants, they, they've of course got higher than the average rate of mental health and physical health issues. So, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of overlap there. And some of the challenges are of course, overlapping as well, because we also have, you know, faith-based disability service providers who are who can make it really uncomfortable to access those services. And you know, that NGIS is supposed to help uplift everybody, and that includes people with disabilities who are also gender and sexuality diverse. I've actually, as an NGIS participant myself, I've actually experienced that sort of heteronormative bias. So there's this massive assumption that you're cisgender and you're also heterosexual. They just presume that you do not have any sexual desire, any sexual expression, which is just ridiculous, to be quite honest. Um, yeah, and I found it to explain it. In my personal experience, I found it difficult to explain why I would need psychosexual support because a lot of the stress I have comes from minority stresses that also include my sexuality. And so it kind of, it's, it's, a difficult, it's a difficult conversation to bring up when you have someone projecting their heteronormative bias onto you. Um, can I just ask, just to touch on a point that you mentioned earlier, you said that there was a situation as part of an NDIS application or possibly talking to other people where you have to mention your sexuality over and over again, which for some reason I'm I'm I am a I'm a <laughs> I'm a hetero woman, but like I found that incredibly shocking that you would have to announce your sexuality over and over because I don't need to tell anybody. Right, exactly. And that's, um, that's what we would call straight privilege, wouldn't it? Because you wouldn't have to announce it to people 
that you're a person who's straight. So why should we feel like we would have to announce that we're, you know, we're not straight. So it's, um, it's just, it's a tricky situation to be in. And um, the toolkit, I hope, is the first step in sort of addressing that sort of situation. And just to follow up on that, like, why would you have to keep repeating it? Like, why? what is the situation that you're in where somebody has to say, like, where you have to announce your sexuality over and over? Can you just give me an example of that so I have a better understanding? Yeah, sure. Um, I'm actually, in terms of that specific experience, that's not a personal experience. That is something that I've also witnessed as an NDIS support worker. So I've had clients who've had to repeatedly remind, you know, remind their doctors or remind their support workers that they are in fact not not straight. And I think a lot of that comes from discomfort within the support worker. You know, they're projecting a lot of their discomfort over. So of course, they, people would have to feel the desire to sort of repeatedly make make it clear that they are not a person who is straight. And it's, it's really frustrating because they shouldn't have to do that. Like, in my personal opinion, they should not have to be. And so, so you're in an awkward position when you're relying on these people to do right by you. And so it's just, you know, how, how, how comfortable can you possibly feel if you know there's someone in your house, someone providing you a service who does not want to deal with you, with your sexuality at all? That's horrifying. That is unreal. Like, I, I, I'm learning so many things from this conversation. Yeah. <laughs> I think the big thing is, you know, you sit here and, and people go, oh, yeah, but, you know, it's just this, it's just that. It's like, no, this is literally our identity and who we are as human beings. This is not, it's not going to be reflected in what we inherently need as humans. You know, that's kind of why we did this toolkit, why we're running a project at Acon, because we deserve to have our full humanity recognised and acknowledged. A lot of people within the queer community, I think, would find that coming out is a daily process. You have to come out to certain different people every day. You know what I mean? So it's it's uh, because it's invisible, and unless you are wearing rainbow and have a like a tattoo on your forehead that says I am queer or I'm part of the community, no one's going to make those assumptions. You know, and it's a daily process to come out a lot of the time, you know, and it's and I, I'm very fortunate to... Uh, not uh, you support workers. Um, I'm very lucky there, but I cannot imagine uh, how confronting that would be to get new support workers coming into your home and uh, and then them coming in with a specific type of bias just because of who you are. How can society better themselves to be more inclusive for queer people who also have a disability, like even on the surface level? Mm. I've been looking forward to this question all day. So firstly, you can just do your own research. The owner should not be enough to educate you on how to be inclusive to our communities. We didn't ask to have these disabilities. Similarly, we didn't ask to become teachers to everyone. If you want me to teach you, you can pay me for my time, okay? Um, I don't believe in free labor anymore and we're entitled to live the way, to live our lives the way everyone else does. So I don't see other people having to tell people how to be, how to be more inclusive of us, of themselves, right? Um, and there are articles and people in the world who are holding this conversation. Google is right there. I don't like the idea of us having to put in all the energy, all the labor to make others have a better understanding of the reality we live in. I mean, you live in the same society as we do. The responsibility should be yours. That's my personal, that's my personal view. Um, I'm very big on training and just to look 
the look on people's faces, everyday people, whether they were nursing staff, whether they were any provider, right? How refreshing the and it's not wasn't the training as in this is what this is what you're being told. It was um, a, a conversation followed by a workshop. You right? Give a scenario. What would you do in the situation? It's a really worthwhile tool and disability awareness training. Um, it's just not for uh, the usual service providers. It's for anyone, really. Visibility at Mardi Gras is a big thing because I think that's most people's introduction to the queer community. Um, visibility at Mardi Gras is huge, uh, and I'm not just talking about people in the parade. I'm not just talking about, you know, a certain couple of seats where you can go and sit and watch I'm talking about if you want to get up to the top of Stonewall, you know, you can get your ass up to the top of Stonewall. You know, if you want to sit on the, you know, in the rafters at any of the pubs along Oxford Street, you know, you're able to sit there because it's accessible and it's the way it should be. It's not, you know, I'm really passionate about changing the word accessible to not even, you know, existing anymore because it's just the way it should be. It's not access for all. It's just access. And that's where I want to see visibility, particularly as a starting point. It's a huge thing, particularly for Mardi Gras. And obviously Mardi Gras is going to look a bit different this year uh, during a pandemic. You know, I'd love to see uh, some of our queer dykes on bikes, humans who happen to have disabilities. Yeah, look at my sexy ass bike. And hey, I got a wheelchair on the back of it. I would love our society to really critique the structures in our society and have a conversation with yourself. You know, ask yourself why are things the way they are? And, you know, what can you, do, what can you do to be inclusive in whatever task or project or whatever you're doing? Um, and I feel like most people never challenge themselves to ask that question because it can be an uncomfortable conversation coming face-to-face with the fact that maybe you have been ableist in the, in the past, maybe you've left behind some of the community. It's an uncomfortable conversation to have, but it's also an important conversation to have for sure. What is the most important thing? Um, you need to start seeing, you, ne- you need to start caring about things that don't directly affect you. You need to start caring about people who might not be in your line of sight. It's a lot of our issues I feel are stemming from the attitude we have, which is just fueled by so much apathy. It's very much easy for people to sort of put us in a corner and just forget about us. But I think, you know, part of society is making sure that we're all moving towards a better future together. And that includes having those conversations. Where does queer, queer ability go from here? Like what are your next steps with the NDIS toolkit or uh, anything that you're working on? It's actually, the future is very promising. Uh, right now the queer ability team is currently working on expanding the toolkit, but we also have a capacity building package funded by the DSS, which is the Department of Social Services. So they funded us to do a capacity building package for mainstream disability organisations. So the plan is to pick representatives from different disability organisations across Australia to deliver workshops on inclusion practices for our community and and for our toolkit as well. And uh, we hope that has a flow-on effect across on helping our community across Australia. Um, we do have plans beyond that that aren't set in stone right now. So. Don't hold me to it right now. Um, we're hoping to create a, a resource that identifies LGBTQ plus friendly disability service providers. That's something we hope to do. It does depend on funding. It does depend on manpower. But um, we have big ambitions and we hope to get them all done. 
And as this is the first episode, do we have a feel-good story that you would like to share with our audience um, about anything, anything at all? I've got a feel-good quote for you. I am not my disability. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, again, you know, I've, <laughs> I love being Michael Magro. I really am in love with being myself because I've learned so much. And as a human being, we get the opportunity, whether you're able-bodied or have a disability or whatever your journey in life is, we have such a profound opportunity to learn, to learn and to grow and to develop and to to complement other people and have relationships. That's my, I just love life. Irrespective of having a pressure area right now and you know my, my, my legs and all that stuff, irrespective of all that, that's what's made me, the person within this body, a stronger, a strong, and I don't need to tell the whole world that at all. The fact that I know that, the fact that, you know, when I fell this morning, um, getting out of bed, right? Um, was, the fact that I could get up and it didn't touch the surface of disturbing my level of peace. That's when I know that, yeah, you know what? This body may not work. <laughs> All right, but it doesn't—it doesn't identify the person I am. I would love to share a good story, and this one kind of—this one's a very personal one. Um, so, growing up in a very conservative household, um, a very um, Middle Eastern household, where disabilities and sexualities were very much hidden and policed and very much brushed under the rug, it's not—it's a pretty lonely life for a gay, hard of hearing kid. Um, I was probably 22 years old when I met another gay deaf person who was from the same background as me for the first time. And um, it's such an incredible feeling seeing someone just like you. Suddenly in the vast, in this vast diverse world, you see yourself in someone else and you suddenly feel much less alone in this world. Um, I think to me that really does speak to the power and importance of representation because it was a very transformative experience for me because here I was watching someone just like me absolutely embody the entire existence and you realize the world isn't ending it's, it's in fact filled with new beginnings new opportunities and um it was absolutely the colors for me in becoming the person that i am and um the point of this frugal story is that it's really great to have a community around you that looks like you that wants to talk about these conversations they want to have these conversations just the same way you want to have them and um yeah, and I've, I found that working, you know, in the queer community and in the disability community, and um, I'm much happier, much more healthier person because of my community, and um, I cannot overstate how much I love it. Love working in this field, love working with my community. Akon is working in this space, so I don't want you to feel like, you know, we've been forgotten anymore. We're, we're making that work. We're, we're going to make things happen, and it's something, it's a challenge that Akon has been has proven to me as a person with disabilities that they are very happy to take on. Um, I do want to make it known that there is a toolkit for you, for you specifically. And if you would like to take up the opportunity, you can absolutely find it on our Acom website. And um, lastly, I just wanted to say it is so easy to feel alone in this world and to feel forgotten. Just remember there's a community out there for you. There are people fighting the good fight for you. And, you know, it matters, this, this program matters because, you know, we deserve to be acknowledged and we deserve to live the lives we want, live, the, live our lives the way we want to. 
Uh, this, this toolkit and the work we do is basically us demanding nothing less but the entirety of our humanity to be acknowledged by the society we live in. So, take so if, just take if you walk away from the from this podcast, I want you to know that things are happening, things are changing, and we're all going to be better off for it. You've been listening to Have the Nerve, a podcast by Spinal Cord Injuries Australia. If you like what we do, please consider subscribing to this podcast. And if you're on iTunes, please consider giving us a five-star review. Your review will help us get the word out there. If you're out and about on social media, please consider following Spinal Cord Injuries Australia on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Thank you for listening.